How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 142 of X-Lapsed, where uh, I just got back from the comic shop here. It's not terribly often that I go to the shop on Wednesdays, but uh, today a book came out that uh, we've been waiting for for a very long time. It's one that's been solicited probably three or four times over the course of the past year, and so... uh, I think the place I usually get my books at, which is a DCBS, um, I think it was a case of The Boy Who Cried Wolf or The Publisher Who Cried uh, Children of the Atom because uh, I wasn't able to pre-order it. I I think, uh, and I know I have pre-ordered it like three times before, but this time when it actually came out, uh, they didn't have it listed and they don't have the subsequent issues listed either. So... At least once a month, I'm going to have to go to the shop on Wednesday to pull an issue of uh, Children of the Atom. I don't know if it's an ongoing. I don't know if it's a miniseries. I don't know what the hell it is. I didn't... I I looked at the first couple of pages of it, but uh, we're not going to be getting to it for quite a while, so I didn't want to ruin it. But uh, it's notable because it is... uh, It looks like it's, you know, children. It's young characters here. It's written by Vida Ayala, who's also... Writing the book starring Young Mutants that we're going to be discussing today It's a new era for the New Mutants It's New Mutants Volume 4, Number 14 Had a February 2021 cover date, the story is Welcome to the Wild Hunt As mentioned, written by Vita Ayala with art by Rod Reese Led as VC's Travis Lanham, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman Edits, Bisa white Sabolski, cover price $3.99 and this one went on sale December 16th of 2020. Now we open in flashback land. It's Egypt sometime during the 16th century. Here we meet a son of a merchant who is a little bit different. He's got powers, you see. Powers capable of protecting those around him. Unfortunately, when the plague came, he could not protect his father. So his father passes. After his father passed, he found, this is the child, of course, he found himself attacked by a predator, a very Sinkovician predator uh, called the Shadow King. The boy, of course, is Amal Farouk, who, if you remember, I threw a bit of a fit about seeing in some cluttered throwaway scene during the Empire cash-in, which uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But first, we got us a double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. It's a long list. Danny Moonstar, Karma, Warlock, Magic, Wolfsbane, Warpath, Fauna, Anole, Nature Girl, Scout, Rainboy, Petra, Sprite, Dust, Cosmar, and No Girl. Next, we have an info page, and it's a letter from several of the new mutants. Danny, Rain, Proudstar, Karma, and Ilyana 
to the Quiet Council. Here, we find that the young mutants are, uh, well, they're bored and directionless. Kinda like most of this volume has been up to this point, eh? Hmm. Professor X writes back and requests that they put together a possible solution to the teenage malaise overtaking the Academos habitat. Well, say what we will about Charles Xavier, uh, dude knows how to passive-aggressively delegate, doesn't he? It's like, oh, the kids are bored? You take care of it. And, uh, <laughs> you just, uh, you just volunteered for the gig. Um, finally, we're back to comics, and we're at the sextant. Karma and Danny are talking about Karma's nightmares. You see, she's been haunted ever since getting stuck in Cosmar's surreal, warped-reality goop bubble over in Russia a few issues back. Uh, she can't remember the dreams all the way, but she knows that they're there, to the point where she's actually afraid to go to sleep. And so Danny decides to have a look. Now, this dream takes place during the final battle against the Iraqi Horde during Exosword's destruction. Now, Karma touches the mind of an Iraqi, but rather than it being cold and hard like it was in real life, in the dream it's hot and filled with hate for her. The face of this Iraqi morphs into that of a more normal human. Not sure exactly who this is. It may be, maybe it's that shadowy kid king from the open? I mean, Karma does have history with him. Um, maybe it's Karma's twin brother. She does have a twin brother she's been trying to search for for, like, ever, right? I, I don't recall. I think I could have sworn, like, her first appearance was, like, trying to track down her brother. Maybe I'm mistaken. I thought that was why she left the, the team as well. But it's been a long time since I read any of that stuff here. Now, Danny, who is reading the, uh, the dream here, she recognizes this human, uh, but cannot put her finger on exactly who it is. She claims she can now feel Karma's fear and decides it's probably best to ixnay the fantastic voyage into Dreamland for the moment. Next, Magic and Warlock saunter in. And, you know, it's actually kind of nice to see Warlock, you know, not pretending to just be Doug's arm. I wonder what Mora feels about this. Um, it actually doesn't seem like anybody cares all that much. Uh, it's weird, because... You know, in all the earlier scenes that we've seen Warlock, uh, I feel like we were given the impression that there was something like a little bit weird or a little bit off or just undermining about Warlock's presence. And, I mean, here he is just chilling with his pals. Um, maybe the original plan fell through, or maybe maybe the whole time it was just a red herring, maybe giving us a little bit of misdirection. You know, we're paying attention to things that are obvious, Obviously underhanded or obviously or hidden in plain sight, maybe is better a better way to say that. And maybe in paying so much attention to, you know, Doug's wacky arm, maybe we miss something. You know, I I don't know that it's worth rereading anything, but uh you never know. Stranger things have happened. Now Warlock says that he's giving Doug and Bay some time to quote, be happy together. So uh they're probably Banging. Uh, Magic asks her pals what they're up to and why they look so serious. She then chugs like a gallon of Fauna's excrement, which is to say um, that weird coffee that Fauna like digests and uh, poops out. Um, Rain pops in and tells Magic that Danny's just doing the psychic therapist thing. And, you know, they go to talk about it some more, but the conversation is interrupted by a knock at the door. And it's Warpath, and he's dressed like a geeky camp counselor, complete with a whistle around his neck. Rain and Ileana have a chuckle at how silly he looks. Uh, he informs the crew that it's time for work, and also 
that his geeky outfit is quite breathable. Now here is where the new direction comes in. The old New Mutants are going to be training the new New Mutants, I guess. It's like the old, you know, what do we do with the old New Teen Titans question that DC Comics seems to ask every three to four years. And the answer is always, oh, I know, let's have Dick, Donna, Roy, and Wally train the next generation. Again. So, we're off to the nature room, which... Uh, isn't actually a thing. Uh, it's basically a sparring session between two squads of new news. We've got the Ferals versus the Elementals. So let's meet them because they're quite the assortment. We did cover them in the roll call, but I think it's worth uh, looking at how um, era diverse these characters are because they're from all over the map here. Uh, we have the Ferals. From left to right, we have Anol, who's a tsunami era new mutant, so early mid 2000s. Fauna, a brand new Hoxpox era mutant, Nature Girl from the Marvel Legacy era Generation X, and Scout, X-23's clone, and we're going to be talking quite a bit about her in a little while. Across the way, we got the Elementals. We got Sprite from the Jean Grey School era, Petra from Deadly Genesis, Rainboy, I haven't the foggiest idea, and Dust from the Morrison era. And, well, they spar. Now, after several pretty gorgeous pages, this is Rod Reese, the Elementals win. The old new mutants give the thumbs up and tell the Tots and Petra that it's time to learn something new. Something about using their mutant powers in tandem. Which uh, is giving me moratory Monday flashbacks for anybody who listened to that series of programs. So, Magic, Wolfsbane, and Danny team up against Warlock, Karma, and Warpath to demonstrate this whole synergized um, mutant power deal. And we see Magic and Danny link up to perform a mirage projection through a magic teleportation disc. Then we see Magic and Wolfsbane do this gimmick where, like, one wolf falls into into a teleportation disc and then out the other side, five more pop out. Not sure how that works. Maybe it has to do with Danny as well. Uh, Warpath and Warlock synergize, giving James some giant mech armor, and it's all pretty cool. And the new news thinks so, too. We see that Cosmar is here among the peanut gallery looking on. Uh, She didn't take part in any of the training, but she's here to watch. Now, the old news asks if there are any questions, and, well, there are. You see, Scout, the clone of X-23, she wonders what might happen if synergizing makes things more dangerous. To which, Rain tells her that that's old-fashioned thinking. After all, they got powers of resurrection right now. So, you know, balls to the wall. If you die, we'll bring you back. Well, here's where it gets good. Scout asks, what happens if someone like her dies? Remember, she is a clone. Rain says, well, of course Scout would be brought back. To which Scout says, well, what about Evan? And I assume that this is a reference to the young Apocalypse clone from Uncanny X-Force. And then... She asks, what about Madeline Pryor? Huh, now you speak in my language. Now, if you remember what uh, Scott was told about the resurrection of Maddie over in Hellions, was that since she was a clone, she wasn't worthy of resurrection. The Quiet Council wasn't keen on having multiple versions of each character just hanging out on Krakoa, especially problematic ones. 
Now, the new mutants don't seem to know the particulars. You know, they don't have a representative on the Quiet Council. The closest thing they've got is Magic acting as a Krakoan captain. All that they know is that Havoc was quite upset that they wouldn't bring Maddie back because she's a clone. Now, Rain suggests that maybe it was due to Maddie doing bad things. To which, Scout reminds her that uh, Mr. Friggin' Sinister is a power player on the Quiet Council. Magic decides that, uh, well, there's no winning this one, and so the discussion has gone on long enough. She tells Scout that Maddie has a long list of crimes against both mutants and humans. She'd broken Krakoa law, which is a total cop-out of an answer, of course. Uh, She then suggests that perhaps Evan Sabanor might already be sitting in the resurrection queue, even as they speak which is a total blow-off of a suggestion, of course. Uh, She then dismisses the kids, and uh, Scout, we can see by the look on her face, that her concerns and worries have not been assuaged, nor should they be, because uh, she asked a good question. Now, we stick with a quartet of young mutants, which include Rainboy, Cosmar, Anol, and No Girl. Along the way, Cosmar momentarily loses control of her powers, which warps Rainboy into a puddle. He soon recovers. Then we follow these four to a gnarled and twisted corner of Krakoa where they're greeted by Amal Farouk, the Shadow King. And they all giddily tell him everything they'd learned today. We wrap up with an info page with Danny suggesting that Proudstar start a diary, and she even gives him a slew of writing prompts, none of which we're actually going to talk about. Uh, For all I know... They're just pranking poor Warpath again. I don't know. It's like, yeah, we're going to get this guy to write a diary. Uh, But that is where we leave it. Now, next episode, X-Force gets their book back from Wolverine, though uh, if I had to bet, I would assume that uh, there'll be plenty of him in there, too. But we got a little bit to talk about, don't we? This was a a pretty good issue here. A really good issue, actually. It's nice to see this book get a bit of direction which, since the opening Hickman arc, it's needed quite badly. And, uh, I mean, while the concept that we're given is well-trodden, perhaps even a little too well-trodden, given how often we see the exact same setup in recent revitalizations of the Teen Titans, and even like the Tsunami-era New Mutants, at least it's something. You know, it'll hopefully not wind up being like a Monster of the Month book, like the Brisson run kind of was. It's like... We're going to go to Nova Roma for this one. We're going to go to the farm for this one. We're going to go to Russia for the... It, it, it was a... Uh, it felt like an exercise in treading water where um, nothing really built on anything. I mean, we did get Cosmar out of it, but uh, so far she's stood in the background and kind of just made weird faces. So, I don't know. Let's do some takeaways here, and we're going to start with the biggie. Scout asks the same question we've been asking. What happens when a good mutant clone dies? Right? I mean, there's no guarantee that the Quiet Council will bring her back should something happen to her. After all, I mean, Evan Apocalypse was, as far as I can remember, he was a good kid. And yet, he ain't back yet. <laughs> He's still in resurrection limbo. And I wonder if we're gonna if we're gonna hear anything more about that. I mean, this is a great question. And not only because it allows us to talk about the heartbreaking Maddie death scene again. Speaking of which, 
Um, hey, editors, I know you're not listening, and I know what I'm about to ask for might be a little too comic booky and maybe uncool with the kids these days who don't read your books anyway, but maybe, maybe, drop a little note in here to tell people who might not be reading Hellions where they can get the details on the Maddie Resurrection woe, right? I mean, it couldn't hurt, could it? Uh, it might remind you that you work in comics, which might be a bummer for you, but it would only help the readers who, at the end of the day, matter. Plus, it might actually tip someone off to what a hidden gem the Hellions book is. Someone who might have dismissed it might be inspired to pick it up and realize, wow, this might be the best book on the shelves right now. Now, back to the question, though. Uh, enough of my uh, weird soapbox here, and let's get back to the question. Because I'm happy that Scout asks it. I'm happy to see it come up here because, well, first of all, it tells me that it hasn't been forgotten, right? I mean, it's it's out there. It's on the table. Uh, it'll hopefully be something that will be addressed before long and, hell, might even serve to further lead to a potential schism in the polite Krakoan society. I think we may have just read a very seminal Reign of X scene. So let's keep this one in, our, in the forefront of our minds here. Just let's keep it in the, uh, in the batter box here. Uh, because, I mean, it's not like the editors will ever tell folks where they could read it later on down the line, because that might be too comic booky. Now, I would almost wager that Scout has been put on the short list of characters who are going to die very, very soon. Just to see how the resurrection or non-resurrection actually plays out. It might be a catalyst. You know, if she does die and the Quiet Council decides, yeah, well, she's a clone. She had her chance. We're not bringing her back. Well, we might have a lot of angry young mutants um, striking back at the Quiet Council. You never know. And I mean, if upcoming covers of the X-Men are any indication, X-23 should be returning from the vault pretty soon, so maybe that's when this will all fall into place. I hope it's soon, and I hope it leads to something big. Let's shift scenes and talk about the Shadow King. Not my favorite villain. Not my favorite villain, but I will concede that he's a very important one. As mentioned during our discussion of the Empire Cash-In, I felt like he was way too important a character to just show up in a crowd scene. Kind of like how I complained that Colossus was you know, showing up in crowd scenes fighting alongside the X-Men during X-Men plus Fantastic Four. I feel like we got to be a little bit more careful about who we cram into meaningless crowd shots, just in case it's revealed that there's more story to these folks and we don't have to explain things away or have to deal with creators and editors mocking us for caring too much. Just It saves us all trouble, right? Uh, I'll say it's cool seeing him here, though I wonder if he'll be playing a similar role as Exodus in some sort of indoctrinating the younger set sort of deal. It's not clear here if he's going to be like just a creepy devil's advocate sword, or if he's going to be a straightforward antagonist, if he has actual designs on you know doing bad, we don't know yet. And I mean, it's still Krakoa. You gotta assume that Xavier knows he's here, right? I mean, maybe not, but uh, we'll have to wait and see. Now, those are my main two takeaways. Of course, it should go without saying that one of the major takeaways of this book is how ridiculously... Amazing it looks It is Rod Reese He's channeling Sienkiewicz for some of these pages He's just doing his own thing on other pages It's gorgeous um, If you are collecting these books digitally This, uh, as Damien would say This is one 
that you should get physically because it is something to behold. It is truly, truly gorgeous work. Um, some minor takeaways I have. Uh, we see no girl here. I can't remember the last time we might have seen no girl. If I'm thinking, like, was it Generation Hope <laughs> last time we saw her? Um, it makes me wonder, why in the Age of Resurrection is she still a brain in a jar? Uh, it seems kind of strange here. Um, my last takeaway, and it's a very minor one, and it's a... Uh, it's kind of a wobbly one. It's not something that I have any sort of uh, grounding in here, but I mentioned at the start of the show that I went out and I bought Children of the Atom today, which is focused on, as far as I can tell from looking at the cover and looking at the roll call page, Younger Mutants. Makes me wonder if we need two books like this by the same writer. I mean, I've talked about the bloat in this line, and... Isn't it bloated enough? Like, do we need two kid books? Um, why not bring young X-Men back and Generation X back? And just We'll just have a whole corner of these young uh, mutant books here. But I don't know. I mean, I don't know what Children of the Atom is going to be. It could be something altogether different. It could have a Thunderbolt-style, you know, uh, gotcha at the end of the first issue, for, more, for all I know. I kind of hope it does, because if it doesn't, that means we've got two Young Mutants books to deal with <laughs> every single month. But uh, we'll see. We'll see. Hopefully, I mean, I enjoyed this issue a lot. Hopefully, I'll enjoy Children of the Atom a lot. And I did enjoy uh, Vita Ayala's, um, I want to say, Storm chapter in X of Tens, the uh, the solo Marauders issue with, uh, with Storm in Wakanda. That was a good issue as well. So I've got all the faith in the world that uh, they've got it uh, under control here. But... You know, just I always think about the bloat. I always think about the bottom line, and I always think about uh, how much money uh, these companies are demanding of us to keep up with our favorite characters. And I guess no matter how old I get, at the end of the day, I'm still that kid who was uh, saving up his lunch money every single day, going without food so I could go out and buy comics. And uh, I have to assume or hope that there are... Uh, there's a new generation of that who's uh, having to make these decisions uh, at a young age where they're going to put their money and with Marvel glutting the shelves here. And, and I mean, just the industry in general, just overloading the shelves with just so much content. I mean, we have an embarrassment of riches and that there's a lot of good stuff out there, but uh, there's also a lot, of, uh, a lot of competition for a young person's dollar, assuming that there are any young people actually buying these. But... Uh, that's all I got to say about New Mutants number 14. I am very, very optimistic for this new direction. As mentioned, it is a little well-trodden, but I'm hopeful that uh, eh, maybe maybe another shoe is about to drop, and uh, it'll be something a little bit different than uh, what, we're, what, might, what we might be expecting just on the face of it. But with that said, let's hop into the mailbag here. We're going to start with Evan, who's talking about Hellions number 7. He says, I'm glad I have you and the rest of the X-Laps mailbag crew to help me out when I, when I read things too fast. When I spotted Nanny in the Resurrection Chamber, I was like, wait, so she already, she really looks like an egg? 
I totally missed the fact that she was more modest than Wildchild, and that Wells and Segovia were pulling off the comic's equivalent of Wilson hiding his face behind Tim Taylor's fence. And in a comic with a body count to rival X-Force, and what should be, but definitely isn't, the least sympathetic roster in the line. <laughs> and it's true. That's funny, because uh, it is basically uh, Wilson hiding behind the fence or hiding behind anything. Uh, that was uh, That was a heck of a good running gag they had in that show. And yeah, they totally pull it off here in uh, with Nanny and Hellions, definitely. Uh, Evan continues, I'm not familiar enough with Orphan Maker to know if his power's ever been mentioned before. My guess is Nanny got to him before anyone could really catalog his powers. If the armor kept it from manifesting, Professor X and the not-X-Men may have only recently realized the true threat he represents. Or, you're spot on that it's specific threat to Krakoa, like makes everybody tell the truth or nullifies resurrection. Uh, A bit specific, admittedly. I mean, that's what makes the mystery so good. Um, Because we don't know. and We know that Krakoa is out for itself. We know that uh, the Quiet Council is... Oddly, you know, overprotective of their secrets We know that they have secrets We don't know how many secrets they have All we know is the one big secret But there could be more So if Orphan Maker's power is to reveal secrets Or uh, some some sort of thing that will trick trip up everything You know, um I think that's a really cool thing here, and it makes sense that it would be something Krakoa-centric, because, like I mentioned during the discussion of the issue, if his power always had the potential to nuke the planet, then there's absolutely no way that the X-Men, the Avengers, the S.H.I.E.L.D., any hero wouldn't be trying to take this guy out while he was still a villain. If his powers could destroy the planet... The X-Men should not have let him get away as often as they did. I mean, we covered an issue of uh, Generation X during Merry X Lapsed that featured Nanny and Orphan Maker, and it was basically like a Wile E. Coyote cartoon at the end with like Orphan Maker just like running away after like an ice cream truck. It's like, if he could destroy the planet, <laughs> maybe we'd do something about him. So part of me is thinking that the powers that nobody should be allowed to see have something to do with uncovering an inconvenient truth about Krakoa, the Professor, Mora, something along those lines. But we don't know, and that's great, because, it I mean, it could be a nuke thing, it could be anything, and the fact is, we're invested, we're looking forward to it, and we're interested. And when a comic can make you feel those emotions and feel invested, that's a winner, because it's it's a rare thing these days, isn't it? Now, Evan continues. I'm enjoying Sassy Sinister's portrayal, but I don't get why the Quiet Council is letting him get away with everything that he is. If the Hellions can figure out almost instantly upon resurrection that he's full of it, surely the Council can too. The reaction showed that they weren't buying his act, but why were they giving him so much rope? Surely Mora has been working for years at this point to reverse engineer his cloning process and copy his records. With the, five and the cerebro, with the five and the cerebro cradles, why do they need to let him have so much power? But I have a feeling the answer to those questions are going to be part of the story and not a flaw in it. Almost definitely. Almost definitely. Because it's, it's like one of those worst-kept secrets, right? I mean, Sinister is... Like, I, I don't know... The one thing I don't get about him, and it's something I love and I hate, is that Sassy Sinister is so aloof 
that I don't know if he actually thinks he's getting away with it or if he knows that they're on to him. Because, I mean, it could be either way, because he could just be so eccentric and so not given a damn <laughs> about what people think that he's like, yeah, I'm just going to screw with these people. If they know it, fine. If they don't, yeah, even better for me. As for why the council is just letting I mean, uh, call me Kate is there like, are we really letting this guy talk? And Emma's like, yeah, I guess so. It's interesting. It's interesting and it's entertaining and it has us asking all these questions. And like you said, I think that this will be part of the story. I think this will lead somewhere. I've got no reason to think that it won't. Uh, because, I mean, Hellions is a, a tightly written book. And I feel like everything that comes up in that book will will bear fruit. And I'm fairly confident that the Sinister story will play out. It's yeah, it, it's too pivotal not to, especially with all we know about the potential futures, and all we know about what he did in our, in Amenth or Araco or wherever he was, uh, and all we know about his black market, which isn't much, but we know that it exists. So I think this will be leading somewhere, and maybe, I mean, Mora, Mora doesn't want him there. That was something that uh, Xavier and Magneto did behind her back, but at the same time. I believe, and I could be mistaken here, but the uh, chimeras were important to a couple of her lives. So maybe, maybe it's a, a case of like, well, keep your, you know, keep your enemies closer, right? Uh, where it's like, okay, well, we have him here. We don't trust him, but at least we can keep kind of an eye on him here. And he's going to do what he's going to do anyway. So as long as you know we have first dibs on all of his machinations and. If we need the chimeras, this might be the way to go about doing it. But um, I love that we're asking so many questions about a book that I basically dismissed <laughs> before before I opened it, of course. I was not expecting anything out of Hellions. And boy, we get a lot to talk about here. And I mean, it's even it's even bleeding into this, uh, this issue of New Mutants we discussed today. And it's all the better for it. So it's really, really fun. Loving this corner of our of our X-verse here. So thank you so much for uh, checking in there, Evan. We're going to wrap up with a letter from Andrew Franklin, and it's a short one about our discussion of Marauders number 16. He says, when talking about the last issue of Marauders, you mentioned the movie Audition. We all know you don't watch movies, but is Audition the one exception? Now, if you haven't listened to the uh, Marauders number 16 episode, um, it ends, or actually the whole thing is basically, I called it revenge porn, because it was Kitty Pride, Emma Frost, and Lockheed basically taking out their frustrations on Sebastian Shaw for what he did back in Marauders number 6, you know, killing Kitty and nearly killing Lockheed here, and uh, I referenced the movie Audition, and uh, even in my little announcement tweet, I said that we should maybe call this book Marauder-dition, because uh, it was pure uh, revenge fantasy playing out here. The movie Audition, which, no, I haven't seen it. (laughs) I haven't seen it, but I know about it. Uh, There's a lot of movies, like in, especially in like the transgressive cinema sort of stuff, uh, things like um, very extreme cinema. I've never seen a lot of it, but I know about a lot of it because I've read analyses, analyses, and I have friends who review movies who uh, tell me about these things. And uh, Audition was one of them, and I did see clips of it, and I saw clips of the end of it. 
which made me kick myself for not watching it blind because um, from what I understand, like it comes out of nowhere. I mean, it starts off as almost a weird misogynistic comedy where a man is auditioning women to be his girlfriend, or be his mate, or be his wife. Um, and it ends with this girl who was chosen, who was depicted all throughout the movie as a very shy and reserved and modest girl, um, drugging him, I believe, and then uh, dismembering him with piano wire. <laughs> because uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why, but... The scene in Marauders reminded me of that scene because I didn't see the brutality coming. I figured it was going to be a lot of empty threats. Maybe not empty threats, but a lot of threats. I figured that Emma Frost, being as calculating as she is, would just be like, hey, we know what you did, and now you're going to play ball or you're going to go in the hole. And, and, when, and as the story went into that, I was like, okay, well, he's going to make a deal, and we're going to have to keep an eye on him from this point on. But no, then it then it actually it actually escalated. We have Lockheed come in and eat his eye, or chew it out and spit it into a into a fireplace, and then he's poisoned and left in a vegetative state. I mean, I was not expecting any of that, so it was uh, definitely a zig when I was expecting a zag, and it only reminded me of uh, that one scene that I did see in audition, which was the uh, the big brutal scene. <laughs> <laughs> toward the end of it But yes, to uh, answer the question, no <laughs> I've never seen Audition um, I probably won't Since I uh, You know, I, I don't see movies Because I can't sit still long enough But at the same time, I, I know the twist So I don't know that I'd get anything out of it here And it's not the kind of movie that I'd You know, try to uh, have the wife watch And be like, hey, check this out <laughs> And then just watch Watch her face as the Uh as the torture implements come out, I, I think I'd probably be uh, sleeping in my car that night, perhaps. But uh, the scene in Maraud has definitely uh, made me think of Audition. Uh, if anybody has seen Audition, and maybe you can tell me if the scenes did, uh, well, not play out the same, but had a similar tone. <laughs> maybe you could let me know. I might be completely off the mark here and just projecting what I think the movie is about. But... Uh, Thanks so much for writing in there, Andrew. Uh, that's going to do it for the mailbag and for the episode here. If anybody out there would like to check in and say hello or how do you do or whatever you want, feel free to hit me up. I'm on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisoninfinitearths.com and xlaps.chrisoninfinitearths.com. You can chat us up on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And you can listen to all your Chris and Reggie programming at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that's going to do it for today. Had a heck of a good time with this issue. And you know, I mean, we're what, like uh, four or five issues into the reign of X? And I don't think there's been a dud yet. I've enjoyed... Just about it. I've enjoyed every issue we've covered so far since the end of X of Ten. So that can only be a good thing, and I'm hopeful for more of the same, and I hope you are too. I want to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.